you're taking notes today, you can write this down. This is sparked off of what Pastor Steve declared would needs to be an emphasis and reminder for us as a church. The theme of our year, Pastor Caleb already mentioned it, putting God first. The, the title of our message today is this, First Things First. As always, I have a second option as a title for you. You can write this down if you're taking notes. If you want to get into heaven, you got to take notes. You can write this down. That's not my concern anymore. That's not my concern anymore. If you're watching online, we love you. Welcome. You can write that down in your notes. That's not my concern anymore. We're going to take a look at, at Matthew. Where'd the, the piano's gone? Sabrina left me. We're going to attempt to read the Bible in a moment with no piano. We'll see how it goes. We're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to jump into a, in a moment we're going to read in verse 25. Before we do that, it, it's important we understand what's going on. We're going to jump into a moment where Jesus is, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching and, and he's preaching. He's, he's speaking to his disciples, but this audience doesn't just consist of his disciples. This audience consists also of a crowd that is full of people who are intrigued, who are interested, who are curious who this man is. Jesus is what this Jesus life is all about you can imagine and if you read through these chapters you can you can not just imagine but you can see the the, the stir that is building from town to town about this this man Jesus that just might be the, the son of God this man Jesus whose words stun the religious experts while at the same time bringing hope to the helpless this man Jesus whose actions offend a legalistic spirit well, at the same time, those actions bring hope to the worst of sinners. This man, Jesus, whose miracles stretched out into the outermost, darkest parts of humanity that most were not willing to go or, or, or touch. This man, Jesus, whose disciples that he chose to be his closest were unlikely ordinary candidates. And it's in this moment that Jesus is teaching, he's preaching, he's speaking. What does it mean to be a true disciple. Jesus clearly and almost shockingly teaches what does it mean to truly be a disciple. And I say this because so often in the church in America, we find ourselves so often like this crowd where we are close enough in the crowd to hear the words of Jesus, but we're also still far enough away to disassociate if we don't like what we hear. Ever been there? I have. And then in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus says this, which from my perspective, is the, Jesus is the only one who has the authority to say what he's about to say. Jesus says this, the title in my Bible, in the translation, the ESV says this, do not be anxious. Another title of another translation, I, I like the, the title that the Bible gave it, it says the cure for anxiety. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says this, verse 25, this is Jesus. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Everybody ever said that to you before? Can you imagine? Hey, just, just don't be anxious. Like, have you seen my life? Yet Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, 
nor about your body or what you will put on. Jesus is saying to his disciples, hey, if you're going to follow me, don't be anxious about these practical things. Is life, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Verse 26, Jesus uses an illustration. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then Jesus asks a rhetorical, obvious question. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? That's an obvious question. And yet Jesus asked this question. Can you add, does it help you at all to be anxious? Everybody knows the answer to that question. And then Jesus says this. And why are you anxious about clothing. Consider, then Jesus uses another illustration, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither, neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, King Solomon in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? And then Jesus says this statement, O you of little faith. From my perspective, reading the scripture, Jesus adds this statement that can be a little offensive, oh ye of little faith, because we know Jesus sees and understands the hearts of everybody listening. It's as if he can sense there is still a lack of trust. These questions that he's asking, oh ye of little faith. Verse 31, then Jesus says this, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Verse 32, for the Gentiles seek after these things. This is what the world is concerned about, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Verse 33, then Jesus says, this statement I want to focus on, but seek first, somebody say first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Verse 34, I don't think we're going to have time for this today, but Jesus says this, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. That's a tough one. For tomorrow will be anxious all by itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You ever notice when you're anxious, you're not present? And Jesus addresses something that is apparent in today's Christian culture, and it is this. Our priorities, as Jesus followers, are absurdly out of order. I would like to suggest we might be living this Christian life out of order, and it is causing unnecessary angst. Make no mistake, this Christian life, we will face trouble, and we will face anxiety. Jesus himself faced anxiety at a catastrophic level in the Garden of Gethsemane. But there are things that are currently our concern as Jesus followers that should not even be on our radar. We are concerned with the wrong things, and the consequences of this is too many Christians are then oblivious to the eternal, to the kingdom, to the what's really important things. Yet Jesus shows us in his teaching when we are first concerned and we first seek, when we first pursue his kingdom and his righteousness, there is a powerful consequence that takes place in our lives. 
Can we pray? Holy Spirit of God, thank you for being here. Jesus, we worship you. We're here to lift up your name. God, I thank you for every person that's in this room. You know that we're here. You're glad that we're here. In fact, that you orchestrated all of us to be here. Holy Spirit of God, I thank you for your goodness, your grace, your love, your mercy, your truth. We thank you for your word today. I pray that we would all have open hearts and minds to the truth of your word to be transformed and changed and convicted, challenged by who you are. God, I need you. Holy Spirit, every day and every moment I get up to preach your word, I'm reminded that, that how much I need you. Anoint these words, Jesus. I need your grace, your power, your authority, your anointing. I am nothing without you. And God, I just pray for Aaron Rodgers' Achilles that it would just heal so well. And everybody said, that's just a check who has a sense of humor in our church. Growing up in the Kelly house was an interesting upbringing. My dad taught me a lot of things, he taught me how to be tough, he taught me how to suck it up when life was unfair, he taught me how to persevere, it's important, he taught me when you get knocked down, the Kelly boys, we get back up again. We refuse to stay down. He taught me how to, be, how to be generous. My dad taught me how to respect my sister and my mom. It was a lot easier to respect my mom than it was my sister. We called her the dragon growing up. And I don't know if you've ever met a dragon, a real one. They're scary, and they're not always easy to respect. Therefore, my dad taught me how to view, respect, and treat women. My dad taught me how to be a man. My dad taught me how to be a dad. He taught me how to play golf, which I wish he did a better job at teaching. <laughs> An important lesson my dad also taught me is how to overcome fear. There were times in my life where maybe he was trying to get me to try something new or do something that I felt was unsafe or, or, or dangerous. And, and I'll remember in those moments when I was there with my dad, he would say this, this statement, son, do you trust me? There was a time in middle school, it was a late afternoon in August, I think I was in sixth grade, and that summer my dad had bought a wakeboard and he was just convinced that his sons were going to be great wakeboarders. And we had tried to stand up on the wakeboard and we hadn't learned how to stand up yet and this day in particular he was he was set that this was going to be the day that josh his oldest son was going to stand up on a wakeboard the only problem is 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 in the late august at least at this time this year and in the water where we were is is in the waters there are these deadly ferocious demonic creatures that infest the water jellyfish i hate jellyfish god why did you create jellyfish if you're here today, you're a marine biologist. Well, Josh, they clean the water. I don't care. Use a vacuum. <laughs> I have sensitive skin. We get out on the water. It was, it was my dad, myself, our youth pastor at the time. And we get out to the water, and you could, you could just see. They're not even hiding. They're just everywhere. Hissing out of the water. I don't know if you know they do that, but they hiss. And our youth, my youth pastor at the time, he jumped in the water. He's trying to convince me it wasn't that bad. He said, Josh, it's not even that bad. I'm like, I can see you wincing. You're a liar. 
turned to my dad and said, Dad, I don't even want to wake, I don't even care about this. Like, it's cool, but I want to be a professional soccer player. There's no jellyfish on the soccer field. I don't need this. Dad turned to me and said, Josh, do you trust me? I trust you. I just don't trust this demonic jellyfish in the water. I said, Josh, it's going to be worth it when you stand up on the wakeboard. So I jump in the water before I have time to second guess. My dad takes off in the boat. It's great fathering. I'm in the water getting stung. I, people say that jellyfish can't move. When I'm in the water, they can. My dad turns around. He says, Are you ready? No, but yes, because I need to get out of the water. He takes off in the boat, and I'm holding on to that rope for dear life because I just want to get out of, of the water. The jellyfish are making their last attempt, lunges to sting me one more time. And I keep holding on, and I pop out of the water. I'm standing on the wakeboard. My first thought is, why does my neck still hurt? It's because there's a jellyfish wrapped around my neck. Demon. My dad turns around, and he's so excited. Josh! Still driving the boat, not looking. Josh! You did it! And he's looking for a response. And I don't know if you've ever taken your kid on a roller coaster before they were ready to go on a roller coaster. You're like, this is fun, right? Sweetie, this is, yeah? We're going to tell mom this was fun, right? And you realize that their, their laugh is really a cry. That's where I was. Josh is awesome! It's like, Dad, I think I'm having fun. Essentially, what my dad was, was telling me is, is, Josh, I know that I'm asking you to jump in the water, and I know that there's jellyfish in the water, and I know that they will sting you. They will. But, but the joy that you will experience when you stand up, it will be worth it, which is a great life lesson. There are some victories in life that require pain. Isn't that true? And there are moments in life as Jesus followers where our trust is tested. Our trust is tested when the call to be faithful is to jump in the unknown waters where we know it will sting. And the call to compromise is to simply remain in the safety and convenience of the boat. And there the Holy Spirit whispers, son, daughter, do you, do you trust me? Church, do we trust God? Think about this. Do we really trust God? Do I really trust God? Think about that. Do I trust that if I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, that he will actually take care of me? Do I trust God even when his way leads me into darkness and despair rather than convenience? Do I believe that darkness with God is better than the easy way without him? Do I really believe that? Do I trust God that if I give my time, my effort, my energy, my money, do I trust that he will bless me? Do I trust heavenly blessing more than earthly delights? There are times if you're like me, sometimes I'm like, God, I'd rather this triple garage than another crown in heaven. I, there's nothing wrong with having a triple garage, by the way. Can I get an amen? Church, in, in case you forgot, our God is trustworthy. Our Father 
is trustworthy. If you read your Bible, you will discover that not only is he holy, and not only is he perfect, but he is, he is trustworthy. If you read your Bible, you will discover that not only is he good, that you can trust him to work good in all things. You can trust that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you read your Bible, you will discover, church, you will discover that the only thing that I can put my trust in is Jesus. The psalmist writes, some put their trust in chariots and horses, but as for me, I trust in the Lord. Church, where is your trust today? Turn to your neighbor, say, hey, I trust you. Turn to your other neighbor, say, I don't trust you, though. <laughs> That's why I turn to you second. Matthew chapter 6, it shows us that I can, church, get this. I can see the level of my trust in Jesus by the subject of my concerns and the destination of my anxious thoughts. That's what Matthew 6 shows us, that I can see the level of trust I have in Jesus by the subject of what I'm concerned about and the destination of my anxious thoughts. Here's something to consider. What concerns you? Because a lot concerns me. Think about that. What really concerns you? What is making you so anxious? Think about it. What is making you so anxious? Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Verse 32, we'll go down to there. For the Gentiles, the world seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows, already knows that you need them all. Jesus teaches, the way of the world, church, is concerned and consumed with the things of life. Anxious about things. Some of these things are even important, are even important and vital to living that your father knows that you need, but our minds are consumed with chasing these natural things, with chasing money, chasing pleasure, chasing our own desires, chasing fame, chasing fitting in, chasing status. We are, we are obsessed with the external while our internal soul is in turmoil. And yet the life of a Jesus follower, catch this church, isn't what it used to be. The life of a Jesus follower, Jesus is teaching, is that is not what, that, that my life is not what it used to be. That does not concern me anymore. I am no longer concerned with these things. Jesus says, verse 33, but, why does he say but? Because he's essentially saying, but as for you, disciple, as for you, wave church, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. All those things that you used to be concerned with, that I already know that you need, I will take care of you. I wonder, church, what are we seeking? What are we really seeking? 
What are you pursuing in life? Like, what are we really seeking? Think about this. What is your greatest pursuit? Jesus teaches a true disciple's pursuits have changed. Have our pursuits changed? The call of a disciple is simple. Over everything else, we seek Jesus. He is our greatest pursuit. Church, catch this. There is a great consequence to seeking first his kingdom and pursuing his righteousness, and it is this. God takes care of his people. Can I get an amen? We don't have to be concerned with the things of the world. God will supply my needs. It's important to clarify. It doesn't say he'll, su he'll supply my wants. And I'm all for wants. I'm all for nice things. I think it's great. God's not against you having nice things as long as nice things don't have you. But he will make sure that you have what you need to do his will. We don't have to be church. We don't have to be concerned with chasing money, chasing pleasure, chasing fleeting moments, chasing fame, chasing status, or what people think about us. That's not my concern anymore. Which, by the way, those pursuits, by the way, those pursuits produce anxiety. Those pursuits produce a restless soul. There is freedom in letting go the ways of the world. And now, as a disciple, all I'm concerned about is the kingdom. What is the kingdom? It's the gospel, the good news of Jesus saving and redeeming humanity, the rule and reign of King Jesus. What I'm concerned about is his righteousness. What is his righteousness? It is his perfect nature, it's his holy character. The holy character of God, his plan and his will, his thoughts and his ways for my life, his righteousness that I can experience by the grace of Jesus. Church, may we be consumed with Jesus. May we be so consumed with Jesus that we don't have time to wonder and worry about the things of the world. Why? Because that's not my concern anymore. And there's an important distinction that Jesus makes that is astoundingly relevant for today's casual Christian culture. Jesus doesn't just say, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He says, seek it first. How often I think that I'm seeking God first but I'm just seeking when I prefer. And there is an epidemic of Sunday seekers in the Western church. We seek God on Sunday, but we seek the ways of the world on Monday. And I've been here where, where I wonder why I don't experience the power of God in my life. I wonder why I don't experience the transformation that I see in, in his word. And I wonder why my heart has grown cold to the things of God when it used to be burning hot. Church, whenever things come into competition with seeking Christ first, may we put them in their rightful place. Where? Where? Below him. And this competition will happen. And if you're like me, the competition takes place 
every day. Y'all still with me? Church, I need to confess something. When I travel, I normally travel in like group six or seven for boarding. That's not my confession. My confession is when I travel and my boarding group is six or seven and they call group one to board, I board with group one. Now, if you're a flight attendant here and you're judging me, the, better you, the sooner you find out that I'm far less perfect than you could ever think or dream or imagine, the better for you and me. Why do, I, why do I do this? Why do I board with group one? Because they don't check. Some of y'all I can tell don't like this. Hopefully, this is streaming online. If we can just make sure United Airlines does not see this. Although they've lost my golf bag so many times, you owe me. I board with group one because they don't check. I also board with group one because they, they go first. And so I board because I want to make sure there's room for me to put my carry-on bag. And when I get on the plane, they're confused when I walk by first class down to seat 47B. Now, I'm not crazy. I let the people that need extra time to go first. When they call the military, I let them go first, although technically I'm in the Lord's army. Can I get an amen? <laughs> it usually works. Usually works. The only time it doesn't work is when they check what group I'm in. But I get to the flight attendant, and I won't lie if she asks me. Sir, can I see your ticket? I need to see what group you're in. Whoops. <laughs> Typically, the conversation is loud. Sir, you're not group one. You're group 14. <laughs> back of the line. Everybody boo him as he goes. Back of the line. Church, every day, the enemy, the world, and culture will try to sneak its way into priority group one of your heart, your soul, your spirit, your mind. It is, it is your job, church, it is your job to deny access. No, not today. Priority one is only Jesus. You got to go to the back of the line. There's some things that need to go to the back of the line. There are also some things that try to sneak into my life and a priority group one that have no place in line. Yeah, you're not boarding this plane today. What am I trying to say, church? God must be first. Is God... Is he first? The world does not need a perfect church. The world needs a church that puts him first. Some of us are still trying to fit Jesus and church into our life. And friend, I've tried it. It doesn't work. 
It is first Jesus. And this is so countercultural. Even in today's Christian culture, it is first Jesus and his church. And then everything else that does fit, fits in. What is the point of our conversation today? The keys can come on up. Please. What is the point of our conversation today, church? And I know that this is a, well, most of my messages are simple anyway, so. But it's astounding how often in my own life I realize, oh, Jesus isn't first anymore. What is the point of our conversation? It, it is this. We must settle the competition of our priorities. We must settle it. And we must settle this competition of our priorities every day. A disciple pursues what? The kingdom and his righteousness. And a disciple pursues it when? First. Did you receive the word? I got 42 seconds left. That's a miracle. Although true to form, I'm not done. I had two ways I wanted to end this message. And the Holy Spirit wouldn't tell me which way to go until right now. There's a really practical end of this message that I really want to share, but we'll save it. And there's also a very important way to end this message. One of the reasons that this is so important is because the next generation is suffering. And church, the stats of teenagers aren't just bad. They are horrifying. Anxiety and depression. Why? Because they are seeking anything but Jesus. And we have a generation that is lost. Because they're seeking things that give back emptiness and create only more anxiety. And my question for us is, will we show them the way? Whether they admit it or not, the next generation church is desperately looking for a people that will show them the way, the truth, the life. They're looking. They don't know how to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Whose job is it? It's yours. And it's mine. Church, as a youth pastor, I cannot tell you when I was a youth pastor the difference it made in a young person when mom and dad were seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. It starts... It starts with mom. It starts with dad. It starts with the church. Oh, will we show them how to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? Because there's a consequence to not, and there's a consequence to doing so. And the next generation is desperately looking. Will we show them Mom, Dad, 
shame off you? And will we show them? Because they are, they're watching. And here's the thing about kids, they know. They watch and they know what, what is first. And that's convicting for me, it's challenging for me, and it's motivating for me. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But we show them what trusting God looks like. But we show them. Because they're being shown everything else. Will we show them? The answer is Jesus. The solution to you. The solution to showing them the answer is us. But we show them. Can I get an amen?